Koinonia, Christian Fellowship, Communion with God, and with Fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. I am Tom Brown, and your host today, Vocab Malone. What's up, everybody? This is Vocab Malone, live on the microphone, 1360 KPXQ. I think this is like our last broadcast of 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Man, the time flies. But I am very glad to have been on Quinania this year, and I look forward to more guest hosting. Although, I am going to be taking a step back in 2017. You'll see me, but not as frequent, because I've got some schoolwork to do. I've got a family, and i got some stuff going on at church. So, this is the last time you'll see me every Tuesday, although I've greatly enjoyed it. So, to do the final voyage for the official regular time where vocab guest hosts on Koinonia Radio. Who have I brought into the studio but a Jew for Jesus? Introduce the people to yourself, <laughs> my friend. Hi, vocab. I'm Stan Meyer, and I work for Jews for Jesus here in Phoenix, Arizona. Stan Meyer. Is it Meyer or Meyers? Meyer. Okay. Stan Meyer, Jews for Jesus. Where did we first meet, brother? We met at the Phoenix Theological Seminary. However, you and I both have Biola University in common because yeah. I'm currently a student over there and you went there. Yes, indeed. And uh, the librarian knew that we had a mutual friend in Jeff Cran. Shout out to Jeff Cran, Chosen People Ministries, who we've had on the show before. And he also knew that I had an interest in a group called the Hebrew Israelites and that you had encountered them in New York City, which we will get to later on, everybody, the Hebrew Israelites in and street encounters in New York City. But for now, let's do this. Can you tell people a little bit about what the Jews for Jesus organization is, what it represents? What do you guys do? Sure. Jews for Jesus. Vocab. Jews for Jesus started about 1972, although we like to say we started 32 AD, give or take a year. Right. We are Jews who believe in Jesus. We say that we exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. We share the Messiah with our Jewish people, and we help new believers uh, understand the Jewish roots of their faith. We also speak in churches and present uh, presentations like Christ and the Passover and Christ and the Feast of Pentecost and help Christians learn how to understand and to share the love of Messiah with their Jewish friends. All right. Now, that's a good introduction to Jews for Jesus, and I'm glad that you're a part of it. Obviously, you've done some stuff in New York. How long have you been in Phoenix, though? What's going on with you and Phoenix and Jews for Jesus locally? Well, I've been in Phoenix for about 10 weeks. I came over here from Los Angeles. Ah. I served for uh, since 1992. I was the Southern California director. I have been with Jews for Jesus for over 30 years. And I my wife is on staff here with Jews for Jesus as a missionary. And I'm also currently a doctoral student at Biola University. Nice. All right. So any events in the Valley that you've got going on or maybe you want to point people to? Because this broadcasts live throughout Metropolitan Phoenix. Yes, it's on the Faith Talk 1360 website, and we want people to live stream. They can also catch it on the app. Just go in the iTunes store, look up 1360 KPXQ, but it's broadcast live. So here we are. What would you point people to uh, that have to be in 2017 or maybe something you're talking about or thinking about people could get involved with? We have a number of things going on. We have we will have in 2017 two Bible studies, one down in Tempe and one in Scottsdale where they can come and bring a Jewish friend. We also will be having uh, high holiday services 
for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in September, October next year. Nice. Now, when we come back, Stan, would you be able to tell the listeners how you came to recognize Christ as, how you came to recognize Yeshua as the Christ, how you came to recognize Jesus as the smart Messiah? Would you be able to do that as well as tell listeners why a lot of folks who are ethnically Jewish, maybe even culturally Jewish, don't do the same thing? I would love to. So we'll hear the testimony. And Facebook Live, people who are listening, if you can't hear me, let me know in the comment section. I'm going to readjust this on the break to make sure you guys can hear what Stan is saying. And I will take care of that because I have a feeling you can't hear him, but you can hear me. So don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're talking to Stan Meyer, Jews for Jesus, fresh from L.A. He's going to tell you how he came to recognize Jesus as the Christ. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Coin and Eager Radio. My name is Vocabalone. You are listening to 1360 KPXQ, Faith Talk, connecting faith and life. I love to host this beautiful, wonderful radio show every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Listen, Monday through Friday, and sometimes you'll hear the man who orchestrates it all, Tom Brown. But today, myself, Vocab Malone, is speaking to Stan Meyer from a great organization, Jews for Jesus. We just spent a little bit of time talking about who they are, what they do, and now, the moment you've all been waiting for, Stan Meyer. How did you come to believe, accept, and recognize that the man called Yeshua was actually the long-promised, awaited deliverer to the nation Israel to be a light to the Gentiles? Well, Vocab, it was quite a journey. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm a Southern Jew. People are kind of surprised to hear that. (laughs) They say, Jews from Texas, you know, I, I thought all you Jews come from you know, the Holy Land, Brooklyn. Yeah, the six-point star and the Lone Star. That's right. <laughs> so, now I grew up in Texas, and down there we say shalom, y'all. <laughs> right. Born and raised there. And my parents, both are Jewish, raised me in the Reformed uh, Jewish temple. Okay, That's okay. The, Can you explain to people who have no idea what Judaism is, what does it mean when you say Reformed? Are you a Calvinist Jew? Sure, no, <laughs> not exactly. So there's three main branches of Judaism in North America. There's Orthodox, which is the most traditional, conservative, which is middle of the road, and Reform, which is very untraditional, very adaptive, uh, the largest denomination. And then there's a host of other smaller denominations. We went to synagogue we were very active there. We did not keep the dietary restrictions. We did not keep all of the Shabbat Sabbath restrictions, but we were very active in our reform synagogue. And so growing up, I was uh, confirmed in the Jewish faith. I went through bar mitzvah. It was my Explain. Mother. Let's stop there, too. Let's sure. take a look. What does it mean to be confirmed to the Jewish faith? What is a bar mitzvah? Now, I know these things are kind of obvious, but sometimes people just hear the terms and they don't even know what they mean. Like, sure. what does that mean? that you did as a youngster? Sure. Well, at age 13, Jewish boys and girls will typically learn a portion of the Torah, the first five Mm -hmm, books, mm -hmm. in Hebrew, and then they will go on their bar or bat mitzvah in front of the synagogue, and they'll recite it in Hebrew. They'll give a very short speech. They'll be involved in reciting some of the liturgy. And at that point, they become a full-fledged adult, a member of the community. Do you remember what your 
section of the Torah was? Absolutely. I don't think any boy or girl can forget right. it after working for weeks and memorizing it. It was the story of Noah. Oh, and wow. The, in Hebrew, the Torah portion is called Ele Toldot Noah. And so it's the story of the beginning of Noah. I remember that and uh, even remember uh, teaching another child years later that same portion. Did you have any hidden apologetic points in your own lesson that later on you were like, that points to Christ? I'm just curious. Anything as you studied that you realize almost later, like post-enlightenment, you know what I'm saying? I always wonder. I do. Not not in that Right. portion. I didn't. I was and I was too young at the time. Mm-hmm. You asked me about confirmation, and this is a, the ritual where Jewish boys or girls in the Reform and Conservative Judaism will graduate religious school. It's usually around fifteen or sixteen, and I went ahead and, and I did that. But when I was nine, my mother came home and told us she now believed in Jesus. Now, growing up in Texas, Oh, really? Yes, and it kind of took all of us by surprise because we were a very Jewish family, and she had grown up Orthodox, in fact. Right. But growing up in Texas, I knew there were two types of people in the whole wide world. There are Jews <laughs> right. and Baptists. Right, 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 right. What about all the other groups, you know? And my mom explained to me that some Christian friends had been sharing the gospel with her. They oh, wow. showed her places in the Jewish Bible that talked about Jesus. Such and as? Such as Isaiah chapter 53, right. the servant suffering, and such as Isaiah seven fourteen, the virgin shall give birth. And after explaining that to her, it wasn't long after that that she prayed with them and became mm-hmm. a believer in Jesus. Well, you she, were nine years old? I was So nine. this is prior to your bar mitzvah. This was before my bar mitzvah and long before my confirmation. And I had known that Jews aren't supposed to believe in Jesus, but my mom showed me places that they had showed her in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Jewish Bible, that clearly pointed to Jesus. Now, I did not really know the Jewish Bible, and like most Jewish people, we went to synagogue, we knew the liturgy, but we, we did not read what Christians call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. Well, what does the liturgy include, though, in a standard reform synagogue service? I don't know if you actually would call it a service. What is some of the liturgical elements? I'm, sure. I'm interested. Well, there's some beautiful liturgy in the Hebrew uh, liturgy. The Shema? There's the Shema, Hero of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a beautiful prayer called the Kaddish, which is a series of praises. Some of it is from the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Some of it is prayers that date back to even around the time of Jesus. So some of it comes out of Second Temple Judaism. Some of it is directly from the Tanakh, such as Psalm portions. Yeah, and I would say none of it Christians would find a theological problem with, um, almost in any of it, because it's uh, beautiful praises to God. However, most Jewish people only know the Hebrew that they learn, and most don't really follow the English in their prayer books. So like many Jewish people, they know, they go to the synagogue, mm-hmm. they recite it. They don't always know what they're reciting. So might it be roughly similar? Similar to maybe uh, some Roman Catholics experiencing a Latin Mass. Exactly. That's exactly how I would compare it. A person from a Catholic background might know the Latin Mass, the Agno Dei, but they may not really know all of what it says in English or really even think about it. And so Jewish people hear the synagogue, uh, the first, the Torah portion read in Hebrew, but it's in Hebrew and they don't really know what it says they may not know what it means. So that was my background growing up. I didn't really know the Jewish scriptures. And there my mom is showing me that it points to Jesus. And at age nine, mm-hmm. I prayed with my mother to receive Jesus as my Messiah and Savior. And I naively went to my 
dad and told him what I did, and he was furious. And he warned us, we're Jews, we don't believe in Jesus, and if I believe in Jesus, I'm no longer Jewish. And so I backed down, and I decided I wasn't going to tell anybody. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was very upset too. So I decided to not tell anybody. Right. I became a secret believer, a 007 Christian. Right. You were a Joseph Arimathea. Yes, something of your like day. That. Yeah. And, I, and that's the way I was through high school in San Antonio and all the way into college. I went to University of Texas in Austin and and there I kept my faith a secret. I even got involved with a very orthodox organization called Chabad. So this is orthodox, not reform, so more conservative. Very, very traditional because I was searching to understand. Something more. Yeah, I was trying to understand my identity as a Jew and spirituality, and I had not learned a lot of my traditions growing up reform. Everything I feel I learned in my experience those first two years with Chabad just pointed me back to Jesus. Right. The things that I learned in Orthodox Judaism, and I dived into Orthodox Judaism, and I hung out and went to their Shabbat services and asked questions, and I just kept coming back to Jesus, to the faith that my mom led me two years earlier. It was in the middle of college at UT. I got involved with Campus Crusade for okay, Christ, all right. today known as Crew, and it was there that I met college students my age who really I connected with, and they helped me really understand the scriptures. They opened up the Bible. They said, you know, being a Jew and believing in Jesus, they're not mutually exclusive. Right, right, right. They helped me understand that as a Messianic Jew, I was fulfilled. I was completed. I had discovered my Messiah. They really helped ground me, and they did more than that. They imparted a passion to reach my people with the Messiah. All right. And so that's when I decided I wanted to be a missionary. And now 20, 30 years later, here you are with Jews for Jesus, an organization that's known for doing that. What are some of the reasons, though, that your brethren, according to the flesh, give for saying, not my Messiah? Sure. Why do most Jewish people, or what are the reasons they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I'd say I break it into three major reasons. Number one, and the first one is cultural. Most Jewish people don't really think about the theological or philosophical reasons, but they think, as a Jew, I was raised not to believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know anything about my Judaism, I know this. I'm not a Christian. Christians believe in Jesus, therefore I shouldn't. And so there is a cultural identity. Mm-hmm. It goes against my identity. And the idea that if I believe in Jesus is I've been told I will stop being a Jew, and that is like ethnic suicide. It's like uh, disavowing your true identity and adopting Gentile religion. It is. It's the word convert. And I've converted. I've stopped being a Jew. I've been disloyal to my people, disloyal to my heritage. The whole value system, I've thrown it in the trash can. And can I use us? Can I ask a stereotypical question? Does anyone, when people do convert, use this classic thing known as Jewish guilt? Jewish guilt. <laughs> you, you've never, how does that, what, what do they say? I'm it's just curious. The idea 
that you're guilty for what you've done is guilt can be manipulative and <laughs> it can be explained that, you know, by believing in Jesus, your grandparents are ashamed of you. Right. There's a se- sense of shame that you bring on the whole family. So not only are you guilty, but you've brought shame upon the family for what you have done. And a so- rabbit trail. There's a show called The Goldbergs. And it's about a Jewish family growing up in the 80s in Philadelphia. The emphasis is not necessarily on the Jewishness. It's more on the 80s. However, there's an episode where the mom wants to compete with the neighbors, Hanukkah versus Christmas. So she has something called Super Hanukkah, which is basically like Christmas. And uh, the grandpa comes and does a lesson on their family's history and just guilts them right back into Hanukkah. But it is the funniest thing. He's like, oh, and you know what this gift is? Nothing, because that's what our people had to eat when we... It's just a funny thing. But I, but I, I, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, stick around. At the end of the show, we're going to actually show how even Hanukkah points to Christ as Messiah. So hold that thought. But uh, so what are some of the other reasons people get for not converting? We've only got a few more minutes in this sure. segment. Well, real quickly, what I say, let me just answer what I say to a Jewish person who does say that to me is if Jesus is the Messiah, what is the Jewish thing to do? What does the God of Israel want you as a Jew mm-hmm. to do? Right. And let's see if he is or isn't. So I do give that answer. Which is a great way to do evangelism. You're asking a question. There's a guy who was involved with Campus Crusade, Newman. Randy Newman. And he wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism. Yes. Great, great book. And he even wrote a follow-up on how to witness to your family members mm-hmm. and friends. Excellent stuff. I highly encourage people to grab stuff by him. And when we come back, maybe we can get into one other reason or so why people, maybe two reasons, uh, do not accept Jesus as the Christ, who are ethnically Jewish, at least often they do not, and how to deal with that. And then we're going to also get into your encounters of street evangelism. Yes, 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 this is Koinonia Radio, which is not a Hebrew word, it's a Greek word. However, we are talking to someone of Hebrew lineage today, Stan Meyer, Jews for Jesus. He's busy right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Not necessarily a haven, you would maybe think, for Jewish activity, but we're a city of six million people. We've got some folks here, maybe more than you might think, and people who are ethnically Jewish as well as converts to the religion known as Judaism need to know about the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, a man named Jesus Christ. Stan Meyer, Jews for Jesus, regularly interacts with those folks and says, Christ is Messiah. I'm sorry, I keep on saying that redundant phrase. I am sorry. Jesus is the Messiah. Let me tell you why. What are two more reasons or categories of reasons people give for when they say, no, thank you very much. You can keep your Gentile Messiah. What's some other reasons? Sure, vocab. Well, the Jewish people, there is a long and difficult history between Jews and Christians Some say that the history between the church and the synagogue is a history written in blood and punctuated with violence is a long, hard history of things done in the name of Jesus in the Crusades to the Spanish expulsion to the pogroms in Russia. And down through the centuries, Jewish people have come to believe that everything that has happened to us over the course of European history is because of Jesus. In fact, Jewish people have come to believe that maybe even the New Testament spouts anti-Semitism. All right, so let's stop right there because that's a major point. 
there is a tradition of persecution, especially when you get into uh, what happened in Europe as you had sort of, quote, wandering Jews or isolated communities of Jews within European cities and towns and villages and all that. Persecution is fraught throughout history of people who identify as Jewish in these areas. And a lot of times it looks like it could basically be blamed on the people believing in Christianity. And that's where you hear that Sadly, I guess, common thing of Christ killer, you killed Christ. And maybe even the New Testament itself is actually anti-Semitic, is a thought in a lot of folks' minds. Continue on. I'm just summarizing what you're saying. That's a major point people need to hear. And and, and Jewish people have this idea, many of them, that the New Testament must be an anti-Semitic book. Why else would all of these things be done? Of course, I ask a Jewish person, have you ever read the New Testament to find out? And most of them haven't. They are parroting what they've heard. But they still say the Holocaust would not have happened if there weren't centuries of Christian anti-Semitism that led up to it. And... My answer is, yes, there have been horrible things done in the name of Jesus. Uh-huh. We can affirm that, and we say that it is sad and it is a tragedy. Michael However, Brown, a messianic believer in Jesus, has a good book on that called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. That's right. It's a great book that's on that right. topic. And Christians should be familiar with some of the things done in the name of Jesus. However, there have been things done in the name of liberty, democracy, freedom from the oppressed. We such just, as things that happen in France under well, the just, Viva la Revolution. Such as just what happened uh, over the last fifty years in a little island ninety miles off the coast of Florida. You yeah, know, we're observing the the loss of Fidel Castro when he rose to power in nineteen fifty nine. He did not say, follow me and I will create the oppressive dictatorship of the Western Hemisphere. Nobody would have followed Fidel Castro if he had told them he was planning on creating a despotic autocracy. However, people do things in the name of liberty and freedom for the oppressed people of Cuba not knowing that he was going to lead them into the oppression he did. People do things in the name of Jesus. And I ask my Jewish friends and my Jewish family, do you think Jesus taught those things? Right. Most Jewish people would say, well, well, of course not, because he was a good Jewish man. He was a good rabbi. He taught moral things. And I say, yes, why don't we read about those moral things that he did taught and stop looking at what evil people have done in the name of Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus So said. go to the source, as it were. Absolutely. That's a good way. Again, it's beautiful because you're pointing people to the Messiah himself instead of misdeeds done and, mischievously in yeah, his name. And as far as the New Testament, even Jewish scholars, top Jewish scholars around the world are starting to have a reclamation of mm-hmm. the New Testament and are recognizing its Jewish roots in Vander. Sometimes Rupert. it's called the third quest for Jesus yeah. within... Christian scholarship—I'm sorry, within uh, Jesus Christ historical Christ scholarship, there's an understanding of just how Jewish he was. Exactly. At Vanderbilt University, Jewish scholar Amy Jo Levine has published a book called uh, the New Testament uh, Notes on the New Testament, in which she talks about uh, the the Jewish roots and backgrounds of the New Testament, mm-hmm. as well as many scholars around the world who are noting the the Jewishness of the New Testament and Jesus. You can't really understand the New Testament without understanding the Jewish background. Really, Craig Keener's done some great work on that, and there's even a book called Jewish Background to the New Testament. So good stuff on that. Now, what's a third category of reasons people give for not accepting Jesus? 
Jesus as the Christ. So, Vocab, if you were to ask a rabbi, a religious authority, a an Orthodox Jew, why is it you don't believe in Jesus? They would say, we're waiting for a Messiah who's going to come reign, bring peace on earth. The lion shall lay down with the lamb. Well, actually, the, the Hebrew scripture says the wolf will lay down with right, the lamb. Right, right. He'll bring all of the Jewish people back to Israel. And this Jesus, he died. Uh, he brought more war and bloodshed in his name. He people, And be the Messiah. And people worship him as God, and our Messiah is just going to be immortal. How can you believe this is the Messiah? I say, well, it's true. The scriptures say he's supposed to bring peace. Oh. However, the scriptures say much more. And you look at the scriptures such as Isaiah chapter 53, it describes him coming and, and suffering as a servant. The songs of the suffering servant especially feature prominently in the book of Isaiah. Exactly. And dying for our sins. You see, there has to be peace between humanity and God, between men and women and God, before there can be peace. Step one. Between people and people. Step two. Until God brings peace between us and him, which only happens when our sins are taken care of, there, there will not be peace on earth, but yet the scriptures say he will come back, he will establish peace on earth, and I take them to the source and say, let's see what the Jewish Bible says. I think that's a good way to do it as well, to go in there and say, what does the scripture actually say about the Messiah, and could it actually be this man known as Yeshua? Okay, I think those are excellent, excellent ways to understand. Now, I wish we could spend a lot of time dealing with all those objections, we're more kind of laying them out. And uh, it's interesting because this next group I would like you to talk about a little bit are sometimes called the Hebrew Israelites. Sometimes people call them the black Hebrew Israelites. They don't prefer that, and I try to not call them that, actually. But this group known as the Hebrew Israelites, some of them are Tanakh only. So they only hold to the Old Testament, as it would be called, and do not accept the messianic static of Christ. However, they unite with other Hebrew Israelites in this belief that if you came over the transatlantic slave trade, you fulfill the curses found in Deuteronomy 28, and therefore the true ethnic Israelites. And even the comment section right now, as you can imagine, some of the people were saying, I don't really believe this guy is a real Jew, synagogue of Satan. And and one guy said, blacks are the true Israelites, and we're the true ethnic Jews. Why are you so confident that he is? Now, I'd like to hear a little bit about when you're in New York City doing street evangelism, you know, you could talk a little bit about that. You ran into some of these guys in the 80s, I believe it was. So a while ago, tell us a little bit about the street evangelism done by Jews for Jesus and your encounters with the Hebrew Israelites in the 80s. Sure, Vocab. Well, we go on the streets of New York City and all the major cities around the, the world, and we hand out our Jews for Jesus pamphlets. We have what, What tables. kind of material would have in there, for example? Oh, we'd have a flyer that says, for example, one that if being born hasn't given you much satisfaction— try being born again, or we'd have a Okay, flyer. so speaking to the existential need that all mankind has, okay. Exactly. Fancy titles designed to get the attention of people who normally are uninterested in anything to do with God, Jesus, religion. We have a t-shirt that says, uh, Keeping Jewish Weird, uh, and we'll be handing out our literature, or we've started having book tables where we'll be handing out iced coffee, and, and the table will say, Brews for Jesus. So, right. And it's an opportunity to engage people, millennials, any age group, and be able to talk to them. In the 1980s, I remember handing out literature and would be attracted to all kinds of different fringe groups and organizations and people who would come and find us because we were so visible with our T-shirts. 
and the the black Hebrews would come over, and the first thing they would tell us is, "You're not really Jewish." So, 1985, 1986, yeah, exactly. Okay, I'd say you're not really Jewish, and they were you surprised to hear that? It was coming from Texas. I never heard that before. I was always reminded in Texas by people that I was Jewish, so I had never been told. Otherwise. How how did you find out you were Jewish? Well, it is goes back from our family. We uh, people know by family lineage, and it is just well. Testified. Some go pretty far back, even to the mid Middle Ages. Yep. Sometimes some, even further, I guess. There are some that are able to trace it. Some of the Eastern European Jews, all the way back. We know we're Jewish. Jewish people were kept in segregated ghettos. There wasn't that much intermarriage. Jewish people were reminded by culture, society, that they were Jewish. They couldn't have citizenship, serve in political offices. We knew we were. And you, there was unique practices that no uh, self-respecting Jew would stop, such as Sabbath observance in some way, mm-hmm, exactly. not eating swine and other clean foods, and of course, the big one, circumcision. Right, exactly. So Jewish people knew, we knew we were Jewish. I was surprised to have someone talking to me saying that I, I wasn't Jewish. I remember I didn't want to broach a subject of what color of skin a Jewish person has. We know people in the Middle East have darker skin. I really wanted to just broach the subject with them of who do you think Jesus is? And I would cut to the chase and say, who do you think he is? They didn't think he was God. They didn't think that he was. So there's a big problem there with the Hebrew Israelites is their Christology, which looks decidedly like Jehovah's Witness of Christology when you get down to it. Mm-hmm, exactly. They didn't. They rejected Jesus being the Messiah. And I remember the one thing that stuck out in my mind most, and that was they said, well, the white man is the devil and you are the devil. You are the imposters. And so I asked him. Well, then what do I need to do to repent and get on the right side? And the answer was nothing. There is nothing you can do. You will be judged and uh, done away with. And I thought that's not the God of the Jewish scriptures that I'm familiar with. He wanted all people to have a relationship with him. Doesn't sound like Jesus Christ, but really, even when you dip into the pages of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament itself, and go to passages where... Yahweh is promising Abraham that he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth and a father of many nations. It doesn't even sound congruent with the Old Testament scriptures either, does it? No, not at all. And so uh, let's talk a little bit more about your perspective on street evangelism encounters with the Hebrew Israelites and uh, some other things we want to tie up in this last segment, as well as how people can get more information about you. And we're going to tell people how they can see the Messiah in the feasts, even Hanukkah. That's going to be good. And if we have time, maybe when we get to the Passover, which is a big one. So I am very excited. Stan Meyer, you're doing great. Don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, turn it up. We like to hear everything. Keep me loud. Make us all loud. We got to wake these people up. If you're falling asleep at 2.45 p.m. or whatever, I don't know if you're doing your siesta, but wake up. You got to hear this show. If you are uh, got it on podcast, you know, on SoundCloud, where you can download all the past Quinity episodes, and it's late at night, you got to re-listen to the broadcast. So stay with us, because this is a great segment. We're ending the show, but you don't want to miss the end. So let's continue briefly on the last point. We were talking about your 
evangelism on the street there in New York City. What area of New York City, by the way? That was in Manhattan. We were all over Manhattan. In the subways, Times Square, Upper West Side, East Side. Where did you primarily run into the folks calling themselves Hebrew Israelites in the 80s? In Times these... Square. So you saw them primarily in Times Square? Times Square Station 2. Alright, yeah. also, okay, I like, I, like, I like specifics. I love it. So Times Square Station 2. Now, with that, we, we you mentioned something that, that's quite sad, which is if I accept your presupposition that I'm a white devil, not a Jewish person. By the way, I brought a book. When we're done with the show, you can listen to it or check it out. It's called The Jewish Masquerade. I'm showing the people on Facebook the relationship between modern Jews and ancient Hebrew Israelites. And actually is a Hebrew Israelite perspective on how uh, especially the folks who, who have some kind of lineage to Eastern Europe are uh, frauds or fakes. But this man tells you, hey, you're a fraud, you're a fake, you're not the real deal. You say, okay, if that's the case, I accept this presupposition. If I did, what would I do to be saved? He says nothing. But let's talk briefly about the Hebrew Scriptures' attestation to this idea of a light to the Gentile nations. Sure, vocab. Um, when God gave his promises to Abraham, he said that the world will be blessed through his seed. And throughout the Jewish scriptures, we see God was intending to bless all the peoples. And we'll just go to the story of Passover, Exodus. When the Jewish people got out of Egypt, it says a mixed multitude came out with them. We see that Moses married a Midianite, and later he married a Cushite. We see throughout the book of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel that there were people throughout the kingdom who were from the nations, some of which God had said they would be destroyed, and yet there were those like Rahab right. uh, from the book from Jericho who confessed, your God is the God. And we have S, uh, the uh, Ruth the Moabite, Mm -hmm. from the Moabite people whom were not supposed to have married uh, the Israelites, and yet she married into, and through her lineage came Jesus the Messiah. Of course, there's uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, who was clearly a faithful man of Israel, in fact, more faithful than the king. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So throughout the Jewish scriptures, we see evidence that God's mission was to all the peoples, all the nations. He wanted everybody to have a personal relationship with him. And so the, this, the story of Israel is not some ethnocentric narrative that's supposed to tell people about this one elect people at the, uh, the cost of everybody else. It was about everybody having a relationship. But then why them. the focus on the Old Testament upon the nation of Israel? Once you have Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, why the focus on this people and their activities and God's dealing with them and, and sort of being pure in some manner of the word? What, how do you answer that uh, if someone says, well, then why is the Bible all about Israel? Which I don't necessarily agree with that charge, but but you do certainly have a focus upon Israel. Well, for one thing, the fact that you have a single people, a single land, mm-hmm. and a single book establishes objective roots to our revelation. If you are talking about the gospel and a personal relationship with God to some distant people and civilization and another part of the world, someone say from China who says, well, our civilization is, is thousands of years older and we have a very ancient heritage. Why should I believe in your people? What do you say if the people don't exist and the land doesn't exist and there is a fictitious book? We have a real book, 
a real land and a real people. And that establishes objective roots to our message. So it's concrete, not merely abstract. It is not some philosophical system of nice beliefs. It's, it's not Greek in no, a manner of speaking. That's right. It's based in a real people, a real land that really exists and a story that happened in time and space. And that is very important for our postmodern world that has a very subjective understanding. Does the Messiah change things on the, with, the, with, with his death and burial and resurrection in this thing called the New Covenant? What's some of the changes, or are there any changes to speak of? This is the last question about this, then we're going to switch to the feast. But what do you want to say about that briefly? Sure. Well, Romans 11 tells us that by Israel nationally not embracing Jesus as their king or their Messiah, it gave the opportunity for the gospel to go out to the entire world. Though one day Israel will re-embrace, will embrace Jesus Mm -hmm. nationally, yet because of Jesus' coming, He has made this available to everybody, that no longer is it just working with one nation, one people, one land, but God's working with everybody and bringing them into that that olive tree, grafting them into this, this olive tree that Romans 11 describes. That's good. That's good. There's more to say about that, but we've got to turn a corner. Hanukkah takes place usually December. I mean, that's, well, it is in December, isn't it? Mainly only in December. Yep. But what do you want to say about it, and what is Hanukkah, and how how, do, how could it have anything to do with the Messiah? Because it's not really in the Old Testament, is it? I mean, why bring up Hanukkah as pointing to the Messiah? This is interesting. Yes. Hanukkah, Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christmas. And growing up, you know, as a uh, later as a Jewish believer in Jesus, a Jew for Jesus, people say, well, do you, do you celebrate Hanukkah or do you celebrate Christmas? And I say... Yes, I get twice as many gifts. It right, right, doesn't right. always work that way. But Hanukkah is a commemoration of an event that happened in between the Old and the New Testament. So there's a 400-year period in which Malachi, in a manner of speaking, ends in Matthew before he begins, in a manner of speaking. Right. And what happens between there is something called? The, 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 the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, so it, it's going to be observed this year on December 24th, actually, the night of same night as Christmas. But because the Jewish calendar is different, it kind of moves back and forth. It doesn't always coincide exactly. It commemorates historically the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus uh, Epiphanius, Antiochus IV, who who tried to Hellenize the Jewish people. and Tried to turn the Jews in the land into Greeks, basically. Yeah, exactly. Go to the gym, naked, wrestle each other, yeah, you know, exactly. all that stuff. What's interesting, a couple of things interesting about it. Well, first, just to tell you the history of it. So they won. They dedicated the temple. The Jewish rebels, that is. Jewish rebels won. They dedicated the temple. They started the Hasmonean uh, dynasty. The legend that goes along with the story, and it's not found in the Book of Maccabees, the legend was that they tried to light the menorah, the, the, the candelabra in the temple. They only had enough oil for one day, and the legend, legend says miraculously it stayed lit for eight days. So how many nights are there of Hanukkah? So Jewish people celebrate it for eight days, and they light a, a nine-candlestick Hanukkah, remembering and recalling that event. A couple of interesting things for, for us to know as uh, students of the Bible. Number one, the only place the story is explicitly mentioned is in the New Testament. It is in John chapter 10, where Jesus is walking in the temple, and he mentions the story of Hanukkah. He, he refers to, uh, John refers to him as uh, uh, in the temple on that day. 
Second thing that's very interesting about it— At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem? Exactly. All right, so that's John chapter 10. All right. Yeah, dedication, the Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication because they dedicated the temple after it had been— it had, after it had been Does this automatically mean Christ accepts the Apocrypha, by the way? Well, it certainly is historical information, and there's a lot of background to understanding our New Testament. Number two, is, and this is very fascinating, is that the whole Maccabean revolt was described by the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. And this is remarkable for scholars, for secular scholars of the Jewish scriptures, because here you have in Daniel chapter 8 an entire description of how Alexander's the Great's empire is divided into four parts. One part of it, a, a, a despot rises up and tries to oppress the Jewish people. He, Daniel identifies the political events surrounding the second century BCE so incredibly that Historical scholars who are not Bible believers have tried to argue that that part of Daniel must have been written around the time of the Maccabees. They have to late date it because if they are not supernaturalist in the sense they don't believe there can actually be divine revelation before the event, a.k.a. that type of predictive prophecy, got to late date it so it's basically just retelling the events instead of predicting them. But, uh, like, let me just read verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. So that's some of the... Right. And for 200 years, secular historians have tried to argue it was Hasmonean propaganda until 1949 when they discovered scrolls Mm -hmm. in the uh, Qumran... Uh, the the Qumran caves, and in these Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered the book of Daniel, and they dated this all the way back to first, almost the second century B.C. So 200 years approximately before the birth of Christ. Right, exactly. And for there to be a copy of the entire book of Daniel in that cave, it, it just is not possible that it could have been written unless they actually recovered the original autographs of Judah the Maccabee himself. There was right, just right. no way... It could be dated. And so scholars have had a real problem dating it that early. Plus, there's just too much internal evidence for it to have been written uh, by the Hasmoneans. It describes too much of the geography of Babylon, Persia, where Daniel was living. And so it, one of the things for us, that the take home on this is you have a book that has very clear political prophecies no human being could have known. It, it right. is a supernatural element. Number two, the other interesting thing about the story of Hanukkah is Hanukkah, we don't know about the legend of the lights, but we do know this. The the writers of the book of Maccabees said that they celebrated it for eight days because it was a late celebration of Sukkot, the the Feast of Tabernacles. That was an eight-day celebration. They weren't able to celebrate it for eight days. They celebrated it late in December. That celebration reminds us of God's tabernacling with us. Jesus said he is God tabernacling with us, and he used John chapter 10 to make that powerful statement that he is, he says, I and the Father are one. It is a fulfillment of the prophecy that God would tabernacle with us. That's good. That's real good. Now, when we come back, we only have a little bit of time left, but you can take your pick. You can say one more thing about Hanukkah, 
or one brief thing about Christ and the Passover, and then we'll have to shut down the show. Jews for Jesus is a fantastic organization, which I heartily recommend to you. I'm speaking to a local Phoenix affiliate here today, Stan Meyer, who's done a great job at going through a whirlwind of topics. This is a show that you should listen to twice. We've covered so much ground. We come back, we're going to briefly mention Christ and the festivals one more time. Don't go anywhere. This has been a fantastic show. Wish it didn't have to end, but it does because radio time is money, baby. Even though I'm a volunteer and so is Stan. And there's no money that's going through our hands, but somewhere someone's paying to advertise and someone's getting a job from that. <laughs> but that's all right. That's how it should be. Uh, we're all right with that. But here we are on 1360 KPXQ Faith Talk, Quinnia Radio, which I'm so glad to be on. Been talking to Stan Meyer. You've done Great at answering all kinds of questions, dealing with all kinds of topics. People are tuning in on Facebook Live. They're digging it. And I would like to hear maybe one little quick golden nugget you give give us briefly about Christ. That is the Messiah being pointed to from some of the feasts and celebrations that were laid out by Yahweh for his people to do in the Old Testament. A big one, of course, is Passover. Let me ask you this. Where and how can Christ be found in the Passover? Sure, Vocab. And before I forget, if for where people can find more information, go to our website at jewsforjesus.org, J-E-W-S-F-O-R-J-E-S-U-S.org, or they can email, email me at stan.meyer, mm-hmm. S-T-A-N dot M-E-Y-E-R, at jewsforjesus.org, and Good. that is all spelled out. So Jesus said that uh, Jesus was called the Lamb of God. In fact, it was John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb uh, of God um, who taketh away the sin of the world. How is he like the Lamb? The story of Passover is the story of how God commanded Moses to take a perfect spotless lamb, mm-hmm. to sacrifice that lamb, to put the blood on the doorposts of our houses in Egypt. And that night the angel of death came into Egypt and slayed the firstborn of every mm-hmm. living thing. Mm-hmm. The blood, the angel of death passed over us because of the blood of that lamb. Jesus, like that lamb, that was a type of him, because of his blood shed on the cross, we are redeemed. We're redeemed not from death of our firstborn, but our own personal eternal death. We're redeemed from slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, but slavery in this world to sin. Jesus fulfilled the typology in the story of Passover, being the Lamb of God. Let me ask you this. Were there Egyptians who put that blood upon their doorpost, perhaps? That's a good question, Vocab. I don't know that uh, one way or the other, but we know this. It says a mixed multitude came out of Egypt, and whether there were or weren't, it's very clear there were Egyptians who realized that there is no other God except the God of Israel. And they abandoned their pantheon and joined Israel when they left Egypt. That's a good word, brother. 